Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. And today we're continuing in our Advent series, and I've entitled our message, Who's Welcome at the Manger? Many years ago, I met uh, a young man at the local gym, and his name was Chris. I uh, spend most of my time in the gym in the free weight area, because early on in my adult life, I discovered that I was allergic to cardio. True story. My heart rate increases, I breathe heavier, I figure sometimes you get that taste in the back of your throat, a little bit of a blood taste, and I just figured that can't be healthy, uh, so I stayed in the weight room. Chris was easy to pick out. His shirts tended to be sort of the male equivalent of a bikini, and that was no doubt to show off his massive tattoo investment that he had made over the years. And I'm not one of those Christians who has a big problem with tattoos, I really don't. But Chris's were basically soft porn. And so it was hard not to notice. It was even a little hard not to stare. And I used to give him a hard time about the narrow slice of the female population that would marry him as long as those tattoos were on his body. So I would say that he'd have to do a mink, uh, you know, sort of an ink makeover and figure out how he could cover certain things, etc. Or a friend of mine, Jerry, and I offered a surgical option in which we would crudely take a knife and help him to get rid of those tattoos. I witnessed to Chris during that time, along with the charm that I've been describing here. Invited him to church, to the church that I pastored. And a few years later, had the privilege of baptizing Chris. And I believe it was then, in his baptism testimony, that he revealed something incredibly strange and profound. For multiple weeks, Chris had come to church and literally stayed in his vehicle in the parking lot. I want you to think about that. I'd never heard anything like that. He, he made his way all the way to church, drove to church, parked his vehicle, and stayed in it. Because evidently through his life experiences, things that had happened to him, maybe things he'd done, he didn't feel like God was approachable. He probably felt like he wasn't good enough. I suspect that was the biggest issue. And, and frankly, sometimes that's our fault as the church often. What's interesting is that God had a major concern about that very issue as he was sending his son into the human family. He had a concern that he would not appear to be approachable even when he, in the form of his son, is coming into the planet to die for us. That's what Advent is about. It's about God coming into the human family. It's about salvation's history's greatest moment. It's about the beginning of the end. The end times really begin in some ways when Jesus came to earth the first time. It's about forgiveness of sins. It's about atonement, that he satisfied God's holiness and wrath for our sin. It's about Advent. It's about hope and peace and joy and love. But what if Jesus comes? What if the Son of God enters the human family in human form to rescue us and people stay in the parking lot 
They feel unworthy. They can't close the gap. Can't cross the bridge. God seems too far away to close the distance. And so they never do. And God is wasted on them. What then? So there were reasons to believe that that is exactly what would happen with Jesus when he came to earth. The religious class of Jesus' day, sort of the institution of Jesus' day, the religious institution of Jesus' day, was self-righteous. They sort of believed they could earn it with God, and as a result of being self-righteous, they were just about unreachable. In fact, when you look at the conflicts that Jesus had, it typically wasn't with secular institutions, it was with the religious institution of his day that wasn't accurately portraying God and the grace of God for humanity. So the religious crowd was in some trouble. The less religious crowd, the irreligious or the non-religious crowd, was not welcomed in synagogue or temple because of the self-righteous religious crowd. In fact, religious people would not even touch other people. Think about that. The Pharisees, who sort of represented the religious elite of Jesus' day, sort of a group of middle-class businessmen who were trying to bring back the kingdom of God by getting everyone to obey God's word. So good motive, but they kind of missed the point. They referred to everyone else as the people of the land, and they would only do business with each other. They wouldn't even have any time for people who weren't part of their class. The scribes of Jesus' day, sort of the religious lawyers who looked at the Old Testament and tried to elucidate all the things we had to do to be right with God, they called Gentiles food for the fires of hell. There was no compassion for the people around them. And so the concern that God had was that Jesus would be wasted on the very people he died for because they would stay in the parking lot and not be able to approach God. That would be unacceptable. God orchestrates the greatest moment in history. Humanity is in the parking lot, unable to hear about him. And in many cases, the religious institution actually was the problem. So Matthew, my favorite gospel writer, wanted to make sure that that wouldn't happen. His other name was Levi, It's possible he came from the Levite tribe, that he was a descendant of that. might be why he was named Levi. Obviously, it means he had a religious home. The tribe of Levi were sort of the people who would serve the rest of the nation. They didn't have their own land, as you recall, when they came into the land of promise. They they were a tribe that would be dispersed among the rest of the tribes to create religious services for them. So he's named Levi after that tribe. Comes from this very Jewish religious home. But he had wandered a long ways from it. In fact, when Matthew meets Jesus, Matthew is so lost, he's so disillusioned, he walks so far away from his roots that Jesus is actually participating in a cultural and religious scandal by even having a meal with him because Matthew was one of those people, people of the land, people we don't talk to. He was also a tax collector, as you know, which means he's collecting taxes for Rome, from his own conquered people for their conquerors. So he's viewed as the greatest of traitors. He was absolutely hated and despised. 
But ultimately, in his conversations with Jesus, his heart was changed and God transformed him and he came back to faith. In fact, he became one of the 12. Now, I don't know what that was like for Matthew coming into that group of people. He had to be the outsider. You know, can you imagine when Matthew first joins the disciples and there's, you know, the campfire at night and Matthew's thinking of coming in and talking to the boys, you know, and campfire gets real quiet because they're actually talking about Matthew and whether he should be part of their little group. I mean, he had lots of history, a lot of history. Did he really belong in, the gap, in that group? And he couldn't fish a lick. He was just kind of a numbers guy. That was supposed to be funny, sorry. Man, I don't know if it's my jokes or if it's just a tough crowd. He pens the first words of the New Testament. God needs to validate Jesus' genealogical claim as Messiah and Son of God. So that's what Matthew 1 is going to be about. God is trying to help people understand how Jesus is fulfilling multiple Old Testament prophecies. So the gospel writer's first first need is to prove that Jesus fulfills those prophecies. So he's validating that. So Matthew 1 is basically a boring list of names and then the virgin birth story at the end of it. So the broader theological point of Matthew chapter 1 is this. If you read through the genealogies and look at the end of the chapter where you have the Mary and Joseph story, the basic outline of Matthew 1 is Jesus is the son of David. He fulfills a prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 that Messiah will come through the Davidic line or the Davidic family. More importantly than that, he's Jewish. He's the son of Abraham all the way back to Genesis 12 and that promise and that he's the son of God. He fulfills that prophecy of a virgin birth from Isaiah 7, 14. So that's basically Matthew 1. I'm helping you to avoid the most boring chapter in the Bible. Just a list of names. So-and-so begets, so-and-so who begets, so-and-so who begets, so-and-so. But it's what Matthew slips into the genealogy that is why this is my favorite passage in all of the scriptures. Women's names. Nobody did that. There were a couple of different things, or a couple of different sort of lines of work where you had to prove your genealogical history. One of them is if you were going to be the king. One of them is if you were going to be a priest. You had to like be able to go back for generations and prove your lineage. And Matthew slips in women's names, which nobody did, and this was not the year of the woman. I can tell you that. If it was, these were the wrong women to list. These were history's embarrassments. They were the women who stayed in the parking lot. This is my favorite part of scripture because of the message that Matthew is trying to send through this list. I wanna read it for you. It's on page one of your New Testament if you wanna turn there, or you can just listen along. Matthew chapter one, first six verses. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Here's the first one. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab. Some great boys' names here, by the way. Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. Here's the second one. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. 
and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by number four, Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. There's four women here with four stories. I just want to walk through those stories. There, there are about three or four key texts in the New Testament that are our Christmas texts. This is one of them. And these four stories say more about God's grace than a lot of the passages that are actually talking about God's grace. And I want to talk about these four stories sort of with four different points. The first is, who's welcome at the manger? The forgotten. Not a lot of little Jewish or Christian girls are named Tamar, are they? Because if they were, I, I can imagine mom sitting down with her little girl and saying, honey, let me tell you a Bible story about you. And then you'd reveal probably one of the most scandalous stories in the scriptures. Not sin, not a sinful story, but a massive scandal. Here's why. The story of Tamar appears in Genesis chapter 38. Now Genesis chapters 12 through 50, so most of the book of Genesis, once you have Abraham, is about Abraham becoming a nation. You know, first you have a man, then you have a family, then you have the rest of the patriarchs sort of become a clan, and then by the time you get to the end of Genesis, you really have a nation that's going to go down into Egypt and eventually come out as a full nation of a couple million people hundreds of years later. Within that nation, the messianic line is already being developed. So all the way back in Genesis, we have predictions about how we're going to get the Messiah. Of the 12 tribes, Jesus would come through which one? Judah. Judah. And so we have this, this line of Messiah coming through Judah, and we have it predicted in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. And I want to read that with you. We're going to put that up on the screen, please. Here we go. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches down. He stretches out like a lion, like a lioness who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. In other words, a kingly line will come from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and the obedience of the peoples is his. In other words, there will be a kingly line through Judah that all people on earth will one day obey. Also, this means without Judah now, because God has narrowed this line through this one tribe, without Judah, there's not going to be a Jesus. He's going to be God's plan. So you have to have the line of Judah. This is a prophecy. Genesis 38, a little before this, is how. So here's the story. Judah leaves his large family He's got this, you know, many brothers. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. So Judah's got these many brothers. If you recall, many of those brothers had committed basically a crime against Joseph. They had sold him into slavery. So that's possibly why Judah might be sort of done with his family a little bit, needs to create a little space. They've done some pretty bad things. So he leaves his large family. He ventures out on his own. So he goes to a new territory, and he's alone. He marries a Gentile or a Canaanite woman. Together they have three sons, Ur, 
Onan, and Shelah. Ur grows up. He's the eldest. He marries Tamar. And like every, you know, sort of patriarchal family, and even today, you know, what happens when your kids get married? You're looking forward to grandkids. And so that's, you know, sort of Judah's dream. And then Ur, his son, dies. Tamar is actually vulnerable now in ancient society. I want to explain something about women in ancient society. They were actually classified legally in a variety of ways. There's technical classifications that you'll actually find in your Bible and in other ancient documents. And it's really critical that you understand the position that Tamar is in. So there's called household women. All right, so this is going to make a lot of you women angry, okay? Don't kill the messenger, okay? All right, please. Say, yes, Pastor Paul, we won't kill the messenger. I'm not seeing a lot of heads nodding. Okay. You have household women and liminal women. These are technical, like legal classifications of women. Household women are described this way with a Hebrew term, a different Hebrew term for each one of them. Here are the household women. The daughter with a father. That's a classification of a woman. A daughter with a father. So she's not married, but she's got a father in her life. A daughter with a father. The wife with the husband. That's a classification. The wife with the husband. The widow with a son. Isn't that interesting? The widow with a son, because the son is responsible for her and will take care of her. Those are household women. Now you've got liminal women. You say, what is liminal? Liminal literally means out of the house. It's a word to describe sort of the threshold or the doorway of a house. Liminal means out of the house. These are women with no household in the ancient world. They were vulnerable economically, societally. Here are the descriptions of those women from the Hebrew language. The orphan, so a little girl, without a father. She's a liminal woman. The orphan without a father, the prostitute without a husband, the widow without a son. So you've got household women where they're connected to a male, they're sort of their lineage is going to carry on, property rights will probably carry on that way as well. And you've got these liminal women, which are literally homeless in a sense, because they're out of the house. That's what it means. And so Tamar has some rights. There's, there's laws in the Old Testament to protect young girls and women when that happens to them so they're not sort of left out on the street. Judah does the right thing. Tamar has lost her husband, and so the right thing to do under Old Testament law, and actually in Hittite cultures around the Old Testament, so even pagan cultures had these protections as well for young girls and women when they lost husbands. The next son in line was to, in a sense, marry to some degree, but not really a marriage, to get that woman pregnant, to raise up a child, to take care of her in her old age. So this was part of pagan societies, and it was a part of the Old Testament code, which you can find in the law. So next up, we've got Ur, who's died. Onan steps to the plate. And I won't describe what happened here, but Onan chose to have sex with Tamar, but make sure she didn't get pregnant. God did not appreciate that and struck him dead. Now Judah thinks Tamar is like something he saw on, you know, the Discovery Channel, where there's a history of, you know, sort of females in the natural world who mate and kill their husbands then. And so 
forgive me, but you know, you kind of got to understand Judah, his thinking is I've got three sons, I've given two of them to Tamar, and she's old for two. I got one left, and I'm not going to have a lineage if I give her Shelah, and the same thing happens. So he tells her that when Shelah comes of age, he'll fulfill this obligation. He never intends to do it. So Tamar is a liminal woman. She's out of the household. She is literally, in Old Testament and ancient law, a nobody. But she won't have it. She knows she has rights. She has rights to procreate, to to have a son to take care of her in her old age. So Judah is headed out on a trip. He's just lost his wife. And Tamar positions herself. She dresses up like a religious prostitute, most likely, but a prostitute for sure, probably a shrine prostitute. She gets herself on the road between where he lives and the sheep shearing event that he's going to. And she seduces her father-in-law, who didn't recognize her as he was having sex with her because of the whole veiling procedure. I don't even get this. I don't even get this. You know, there's these situations in the Old Testament where somebody, a man has sex with a woman, finds out the next day who she is. How does that happen? I mean, you got to admit, there's some things that are pretty hilarious about ancient culture, but to me, that sort of, that level of mystery is not okay. Anyway, she becomes pregnant by her father-in-law with twins. When Judah recognizes she's pregnant after a few months and she's showing, he accuses her of prostitution. He and the rest of the clan are going to burn her to death. And then she pulls out what he had given her for payment the day this happened and proves that he is the father of the twins that she carries. The first of those babies is named Perez. He's in the line of Christ. In other words, without this scandalous event by Tamar, who did not break the law, she had a right to become pregnant by that family line. Without that nobody, that liminal woman named Tamar in the ancient world, you would not have Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Tamar was God's instrument. People like Tamar are welcome at the manger. That's the point Matthew was making. Don't let the religious institution of the day block you from understanding who God really is and the kind of people he has used throughout history and pulled into his family. It's people like Tamar, the nobody. Then there's the person with the past. We know her as Rahab. It's around 1400 B.C., Israel's ready to invade the promised land. We move forward in history a little ways. God has promised this land to Israel. Now, for those of you who kind of are thinking through this with a little skepticism, you might say, well, is that really fair that God is sort of on Israel's side and he's gonna help them win their wars and take the promised land? Doesn't that seem a little capricious for God to take sides in national issues like this? Well, here's one way to look at this. In Genesis chapter 15, when God promised to Abraham that they would eventually occupy the promised land, he knew that it would be unjust for him, for God, to do it 
until he was ready to judge that land for its evil practices. And he actually says to Abraham, the sin of the Amorites has not yet sort of come to fruition. In other words, I know what's gonna happen in this region of the world. I'm not gonna judge it yet. So part of allowing Israel to go there and displace those peoples was a judgment on those peoples for evil religious practices, which included child sacrifice and other things. So eventually that takes place. Israel is on the edge of the promised land. Israel sends spies to Jericho. They go to the local inn. Where are you going to stay in Jericho? Motel 6. But unfortunately, Rahab owned Motel 6, and she also operated it as sort of a house of ill repute. She was the owner-operator. Now, we don't know how Rahab ended up as a prostitute, but she was. She wasn't necessarily forced into it like many women in the ancient world. We would not see her as a liminal woman out of the household because she clearly had family because you remember part of the deal was my life for yours, you protect my family as well. She had family, but she was a pagan. She lived in a pagan culture. Why wouldn't she live as she did, sadly? But she had heard of Israel's God. No matter what was going on in her private life, no matter how she earned a living, she was following international events. And she had heard about what was going on as Israel came out of Egypt. She knew about the miracles. The rumors were flying around on Twitter, Snapchat. She knew. And so she said to those spies that I know that you follow the God in heaven above and on the earth below, which is really interesting because that's a technical religious way of identifying God compared to the Baal gods, because the Baal gods were the gods of the earth. They're the ones that sort of provided fertility for the crops and the herds and so on. She's recognizing that they served the God of the heavens above and the earth below. It was actually a profound understanding of who God was by this pagan prostitute. They'd been noticed in Jericho when they came in and soldiers were on the way to her house as she makes this deal with the spies. She says, I will hide you. I will lie for you. I will protect you. But in the end, my life for yours. My life and the life of my family for your lives. And they agreed. So she hid them under bundles of flax, which is what you use to make linen in the ancient world. She misled the soldiers. She lied to them. Sent them the other direction. And when the Israelites were marching outside of her hometown, she put a scarlet rope out her window, probably a series of scarves tied together. Interestingly, when you read that story, the city fell miraculously. The walls actually fell outward, and the homes were built in the walls. These were wide walls. The walls fell outward, and we actually have found the ancient ruins of Jericho, and they exhibit this. The walls fell outward, and there was a part of the walls that still stood, and that was Rahab's house. Her family was assimilated into the nation of Israel. She married a man named Salmon. Their son was Boaz. Without Rahab the prostitute, without this story of the person with the past that God has brought into his family, brought into the people of faith, without Rahab, there's no Jesus. Without the act of a prostitute, who came to faith, you do not have the Son of God entering the human family. Matthew wanted to put that in the face of the religious people who would first read this and help them understood who God really is. 
Then there's the outsider, the irreligious. Not long after this, Israel occupied the new land, and soon after that, a Jewish family moved southeast to Moab. Now, this was a country that was just southeast of of Israel, a little bit of an arid place, and and a longtime enemy. This family had a husband named Elimelech, a wife named Naomi, and two sons. They get to Moab because there's a famine in Israel. They want to hopefully find a better place to make a living and survive. When they get there, there's no Jewish girls in the youth group. That's a problem. Because their sons, they wanted wives, and so they married Moabite girls. In time, all three men die, Elimelech and the two sons. So now you've got a Jewish woman living in a foreign country named Naomi, and she's got two daughters-in-law that are both Moabite women. And they're all vulnerable in the ancient world. All three of these are basically liminal women, no household, unless something is done legally to protect them. Naomi advises her two daughters-in-law that are from this new country, you just need to stay here, you need to remarry, that will protect you. One of those daughters-in-law one with a really, really soft heart named Ruth just loved her mother-in-law. She said, no. Wherever you go, I'm gonna go. It's a wedding song. It's actually between two women about the daughter-in-law's commitment to the mother-in-law. Wherever you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. So she went back with Naomi to this new land called Israel. Ruth made herself available in marriage as a way to raise up an heir to protect Naomi's rights. You know the story about how Boaz fulfilled that role. Ruth is in the line of Christ. Ruth is an outsider. She was a liminal woman for this short period of time. You say, so where's the controversy there? We actually do name our daughters Ruth. We don't name them, you know, Tamar. We don't name them Rahab. We don't name them Bathsheba, typically. But we do name them Ruth. So where's the controversy? Well, here's where. The Moabites and the Ammonites and the Israelites are sort of ancient relatives. The Moabites and the Ammonites come through Lot. Remember Abraham's nephew. So they're all sort of Semitic peoples. They're tribes. Both of these foreign nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites, stood in Israel's way at every turn as Israel was trying to come into the promised land. They tried to prevent them from reaching it. So it wasn't sort of a racial divide. It was more of a, of a tribal hatred between these groups of people. But because God had his favor on Israel, in the law, in Deuteronomy 23.3, here's what God said about how are you to handle the Moabites because of how they stood against his people trying to get to the promised land. Here's a quote. No Moabite can enter the assembly of the Lord for ten generations. That's a little harsh. So God is saying, because of what this nation has done to my people, they're not coming to church for 10 generations. The Moabites were those people. They were religious outcasts. They were the outsiders. Now possibly all four of these women were Gentiles. We know that that Ruth was for sure. But Ruth is in the line of Christ. Without her, without this outsider whose people are banned from the temple for 10 generations, the group of people that are related to Israel, literally by blood, but hated the most, 
without her. You don't have Jesus. You don't have a son of God in the human family. And Matthew wanted people of his day to know that. God is not far away. Don't stay in the parking lot. His arms are open to people like Tamar, Rahab, the prostitute, and Ruth, the outsider. And then there's the scandal. David's story with Bathsheba. David's the king of Israel, the most beloved king ever. He gave us a lot of the Psalms, and he's won all of his battles. There's only one enemy remaining. It's the Ammonites, actually, which were sort of these Semitic relatives of Israel off to the east, and he stays home from battle. He's out on his porch one night. He looks out, and there's a woman taking a bath on the roof. He gets his hunting binoculars, checks a little more closely. Thank you for laughing at that error. They just, just, just came out. He's the king. Wasn't right, but in the ancient world, the king could pretty much do whatever he wanted to do and have whatever he wanted to have, so he sent a messenger. The messenger said, you know, that's, that's actually Bathsheba. Gave him the binoculars. That's actually Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife. Like Uriah, one of your 30 mighty men. Like that's one of your generals, David, basically, or colonels in your army. That's his wife. David sent for her. She came to the palace. They had an affair. She went back home. Shortly thereafter, she sent a note to David saying, David, I'm pregnant. Sign B. Well, now we've got a problem. Now, I don't know that they understood fully the gestation period like we do today where you can go to the doctor and know within a day when you got pregnant and when the baby's gonna be due. So David is thinking, okay, this is not a very scientific time in history, so maybe we can get away with this. So we gotta just deal with Uriah because he's out at war. He's at the front right now. So if we can get rid of Uriah or get him to go home with his wife quickly, it'll look like he got her pregnant. So he brings Uriah back from the front tries to get Uriah to go home with his wife. I suspect Uriah suspected something, but Uriah basically said, I can't go home with my wife. All my fellow soldiers are at the front. David tried three different ways to get him there. He wouldn't go home. So David sent in Uriah's hand a sealed note to tell the general to get Uriah in the middle of the battle and get him killed, which took place, and now David is guilty of adultery and murder, which are both capital crimes in ancient Israel, which means there's no sacrifice for it, actually. So now he brings her into his home, he marries her, and they have a baby, that baby dies. Their next child is named, guess who? Solomon. One of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. Without Bathsheba, without that affair, doesn't mean God is pro-sin, he's not. Without that circumstantial situation, you wouldn't have the line of Christ. You wouldn't have Jesus. God used Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba. She was a scandal. In fact, even as Matthew describes this, he lists her name, and, and then he actually says the wife of Uriah because he wants to remind his readers, hey, guys, it's not just that it's Bathsheba, but it's the wife of Uriah. He's pointing out that their most beloved historical figure ever was a part of this. But without all four of these women, possibly all of them Gentiles, Gentiles, 
for sure three, maybe four, you would not have Jesus as Messiah, fulfillment of prophecy. You would not have had God's son come into this world in the way he did. And Matthew, this is Matthew's way of saying, this is how God orchestrates history. It's how he takes the brokenness of our lives and weaves it together and gives us better futures. It's who God uses in many ways. So who's welcome at the manger? Apps. First, Mary and Joseph just became less controversial. Now one of the reasons Matthew probably included this is he knew what was going to happen here. He knew the story of Mary and Joseph. You've got this controversial situation where Mary is pregnant. She's saying she's pregnant by, by God. I mean, that's quite a story. You know, you might believe that once in history. Nobody else can pull that off. But because we know the miracles surrounding this, the angelic visions and so on, all the things that went on, we actually believe this story of the virginal conception or what we call the virgin birth. But the people of Jesus' day were going to struggle with this. Even though they had a prophecy about it, they were going to struggle with this. The Pharisees never got over it. I believe it's the Gospel of John where they're bringing it up to Jesus about his background because they never thought he was legitimate. But this would make their story a little more palatable. God has a history of doing some things that appear scandalous to us. So it's probably one of Matthew's purposes to help the Mary and Joseph situation look more palatable to his readers. But I don't think it's the main reason. To me, it's this. Jesus came for the forgotten, for the person with a past, for the outsider, for the scandal. Matthew is trying to reshape the religious landscape that he knows Jesus walked into, that he knows the early church would naturally be a part of. It was an us versus them mentality. It was an insiders versus outsiders way of thinking. It was Jew versus Gentile, religious versus irreligious. And he's trying to say, God, the God of the universe who sends his son into humanity to rescue us is available to everybody. Don't let it be wasted. His movement needs to be available to everybody. Our hearts need to help make him available to everybody. We need to be available to everybody. Who do we think God saves? He doesn't save, as he said, the people who don't need a doctor. He saves the spiritually sick, which is us, which is the forgotten, the person with a past, the outsider, the scandal, today's equivalent of the liminal woman in the ancient world. That's God's grace. Maybe you're a person who didn't think you needed a lot of it, which just shows how much you need it. God saves sinners, as the Apostle Paul said, of whom I am chief. And sometimes, it's not just about the church being available to those people. It's about recognizing we are those people. We are those people. And it's important for you to know that your history, the things that you wouldn't want anyone in this room to know about you and your past, don't shock, they don't shock Jesus, they didn't scare him away. He doesn't sit up in heaven saying, well I'm not sure I'm gonna save that one. They went a little too far in their life. What do we think grace is? Who do we think it's for? 
That's why he came. Came for people like you in your darkest moments. People like me in my darkest moments. And Matthew put this in here to help us understand. Everybody is welcome at the manger because if these four women are with their history, you sure are too. That's why he came. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for these stories that we see in the Old Testament about your grace and how we're supposed to understand grace through them. Thank you for the genius of Matthew as he put this together. Wove in the history of these women to help us understand God's view of us. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.